Okay, I think we're ready. Okay, good morning, everyone. Glad you're all here and this cold day. If you guys want to stand with me, we'll begin with the call to worship this morning. Oh, I don't know about you guys, but <laughs> I'm tired, but glad to be here. So um, let's begin with Psalm 95, if you want to answer after me. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise. <laughs> songs of praise. I told you I was tired. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. And in his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. If you want to turn with me to hymn number three, we'll sing. Holy, holy, holy.
I know for a fact that Kendall's desire with this church is to preach and teach the whole counsel of God's Word. you agree with that? I share that same desire. But unlike Kendall, I can tend to assume sometimes. I have assumptions that uh, everybody's on the same page as I am. And the reason I bring that up is, is uh, when we're reading the old, out of the Old Testament, there may be some who have heard teachers who have said things like, uh, we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. Has anybody ever heard that? Um, there couldn't be anything further from truth. And I know Kendall does not share that, and that's why he, he teaches and preaches the whole counsel of God. So when saying that, just in case there are some here who wonder why we start out in the Old Testament, where there's the law, and how does this law apply to us, and how do we apply it to our, our works and our lives every day, I kind of just wanted to uh, touch on that just a little bit. So here in Exodus, where it talks about carving images, we are not supposed to do that. How does that apply to our lives? And it's more like, um, I'm pretty sure that none of us are going around carving our own little images and putting these idols up on the shelves in our house. <laughs> But we may have certain idols that we, that we have, whether it be intelligence, education, uh, favorite author, favorite teacher, favorite school, something that we put up high. And I'm not talking about disrespecting. I mean putting it above God. And that's what this speaks to here in Exodus 24 through 6, the second of the Ten Commandments. To not put anything that is created above the Creator. So here in Exodus 24 through 6, it says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them and serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Would you all join me with me as we pray this prayer of confession? Almighty God, the depths of the earth are in your hands, the mountains and the sea also. Yet, rather than worship you, the creator of all things, we have worshipped and served created things and made gods in our own image. With heartfelt sorrow, we repent and turn away from all our offenses. For the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord, be gracious to us, and by the grace of your Holy Spirit, help us to fight our sin and look to Christ. Amen.
you want to remain standing, we'll turn to hymn number 302, the great hymn, A Mighty Fortress. Um, this will be a new one today. This is written by Martin Luther in 1529, so almost 500 years old. Um, it's based off of Psalm 46, which talks about God being a mighty fortress for his people and against all the ta- attacks of the enemy, of the devil and his minions, um, not like the TV show, <laughs> that we have a great refuge in God. And I just wanted to point out some of these lyrics because they're just amazing. In the third verse, it says, Though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. And then he says this, The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. So we're reminded that God is our refuge, and even though many of us in this room experience trials and tribulations, whether from within or without, we're reminded that Satan's doom is sure, (laughs) and all it takes is one word from the Lord, and he will fall. So let's sing these words. um, Follow along as you are able. For him, his rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is true. 
God's truth abides still. His kingdom is You may have heard that God's law is similar to a mirror, where when you look in the mirror, you see the, the things that need to be corrected, the dirt on your face. The law is like that. That's what the law is for. We read the law and we see where we fail, where we don't measure up to God's standards. But we don't use the mirror to wash our face. Right? We use the mirror to see what needs to be corrected. And we use a washcloth. We use soap to wash our faith. And what is needed is not the mirror, the law, to cleanse us. We need the blood of Christ to cleanse us. And so we apply the blood of Christ by faith for a cleansing. Here in uh, Galatians chapter 4, starting at verse 4, 4 through 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. We come to you as filthy, dirty, depraved people. Understanding, Lord, that we don't measure up to what you have as a standard. And because of your law that we read and we see where we fail, we see the great need in our lives for a cleansing. And we are here this morning, Lord, to hear the truth that is through your blood shed that we find that redeeming power. We find that cleansing in the sacrifice of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for looking on us who are unworthy and making us worthy through your Son, Jesus. Amen. So it brings us to uh, Baptist Catechism here in our Confession of Faith. So the question is, what, what exactly is justification? If you'd read the answer with me, please. Justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight. Only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. You may be seated. Good morning again, everyone. Hope you're all doing well. If you want to turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 4, we'll be looking at verses 4 through 6, really just as a Jumping off point this morning, we'll be trying to look at all of Scripture this morning, so we'll see how that goes. Um, 
I was talking to my, some members of my family this last week. They've been going through uh, the Bible in a year with their church. And they've been reading the scriptures. And they've been going to church for probably 30 years now. But I don't think they've ever read through the scriptures all the way. And so uh, a member of my family was opening up to me and was talking about how she was reading things in Genesis or Leviticus that she didn't know what to do with, right? There's all these genealogies. There's all these crazy stories, um, family drama, um, death, all these multiple wives. And she was being honest. She said, I don't know what the point of these is. I didn't even know these were in the scripture. And it was good of her to be honest with me. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, while we might say with our mouth, you know, we believe God's word, that we hold to it as inerrant, as sufficient. If we're honest, we don't always know how does this book fit together? Are these 66 books all separate? Um, are the Old Testament and the New Testament, how are they related? How do we fit this story of Scripture together? How do we understand it? And another point is many of us in this room over the last months or years of our life, we've come to be very fond of this idea of God's grace revealed in the gospel justification by faith alone, all the things that we've talked about this morning. And sometimes we don't know how that exactly works, right? Why did, why did Jesus have to come? Why did he have to take on flesh? How is God still just um, without punishing us for the sin that we commit? So all that to say, there is a key that opens all these doors, <laughs> that opens all the scriptures that opens this idea of justification by faith alone. And the word is covenant. And you say, Kindle, that's a great name for a church. And I'd say, you're right. <laughs> the word is covenant. The word is covenant. Many of us might be familiar with this word. Maybe we're familiar with the Abrahamic covenant or these various covenants throughout Scripture. But this word covenant is crucial to how we understand not only God, his word, but salvation. And it's really at the heart of God's saving purposes and the Christian's hope. And so we're going to try to look at that this morning and, and see how that bears out. So if you want to look with me at Romans chapter 4, we will read verses 4 through 6. I'll pray for us, and then we'll look at this idea of covenant throughout the scriptures, culminating in the work of Christ. Paul says this in Romans 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Would you pray with me? Dear Lord, we need your help this morning. We are distracted, we're tired, we're, we hear all sorts of sounds, Lord, and yet you call us to worship you. You call us to come humbly, submitting to your word with our sinful hearts, our um, proud minds, with our ignorance, Lord. We don't understand these things, they're too high for us, and yet you call us to come to worship you, and you promise that when we meet together, 
by your spirit, you will be with us, that you will empower the proclamation of your word and that you will strengthen us and equip us for every good work. Would we believe that this morning and would we see the work of Christ and the work of the triune God throughout all the scriptures and would we worship you today? In your name we pray. Amen. So covenant. What is, what is a covenant? Let's start there. Let's define what is a covenant. We don't use this word very much in our everyday language. Maybe you guys do, but I don't. What is a covenant? It is, simply put, it is an agreement or a commitment with sanctions. An agreement with sanctions. What are sanctions? They are um, consequences. They are either promises upon the completion of the agreement, or they are curses for not completing the agreement. So a covenant is an agreement with sanctions. A commitment with either blessing or curse. This is a covenant. And we see these not only in our world, if you think about a standard employee-employer relationship is a covenant of sorts. If you do this work, you will receive these benefits, whether maybe it's health insurance or money. And if you don't, you'll be fired. <laughs> right? So we're all familiar with this concept. This is a basic covenant. And we see these not only in our world today, but throughout the scriptures. We see these words, like I said, maybe it's the Abrahamic, the Noahic covenant. We see these words. What do they mean? So this is a covenant. Another question we need to ask is, are all covenants the same? Are they all created equal? And not only in our world, but also in Scripture, we see these two main types of covenants. These two main types of covenants. Covenants of work and covenants of grace. Covenants of work. What's a covenant of work? It's very similar to an employee-employer relationship. The benefits of that covenant must be earned. There's agreed stipulations for obedience. If you complete that, you get the reward. You work, and then you earn. So the benefits of the covenant are earned. This is a covenant of work. We call this a bilateral covenant. Maybe that's a lawyer term or something like that. Where the benefits are earned. This is covenants of work. Now, in covenants of grace... The benefits are not earned by the party, but they are instead given. The benefits are earned for someone and then graciously given as a gift. So we see both of these covenants, not only in our world, but in Scripture. And so while these exact phrases might not appear in the Scriptures themselves, similar to the word Trinity, the concept is there, right? So we don't see the word Trinity in Scripture but that concept is there, one God in three persons. And so while we don't see these words covenant of work or covenant of grace, the concepts are there, and hopefully that will bear out this morning. And we've even seen that in our passage this morning. So all that to say, covenants are important. They not only teach us about God, how he works in his world and with his people, but they teach us about the unified plan of God's redemption, how from the beginning in Genesis 1 to Revelation, God has a unified plan of redemption. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't go back on what he says. He is a covenant-keeping God. And hopefully we'll, we'll see that this morning. So we will look at these two covenants this morning. The covenant of works and the covenant of grace. 
So it's a very simple outline this morning. One and two. The covenant of works and the covenant of grace. Start with the covenant of works. What is this? Maybe some of you are familiar with this word. You might have heard me talk about this. Maybe this is a totally new concept. (laughs) You're saying, Kendall, what are you talking about? The covenant of works. It is one of the most, I think, important doctrines for many reasons. One of them being to maintain and uphold this idea of justification by faith alone. Hopefully that becomes apparent by the end. So what is the covenant of works? We have to go back to Genesis 2. And you could turn with me there if you'd like. Genesis 2. This is the beginning of the Bible. We've seen God create the world in six days, enter into a Sabbath rest. Everything is good. And the pinnacle of God's creation is man. It is man created in the image of God, the imago Dei. In the image of God, the pinnacle of God's creation is man in the image of God. And it says in Genesis that he places man in this garden, in this sanctuary, if you will, where Adam is the king. Not the king, right? God is the king, but Adam is placed under God as a vice regent, a under king, right? So he is to keep this land, he is to protect it, and he is to fill it. And I think for us, we can sort of, in our minds, if we're not careful, we can sort of assume that we're a lot like Adam, right? He's created in the image of God, I'm created in the image of God, me and Adam are the same. But Adam's situation is very different than ours. How so? Adam was perfect, right? He had no sin. There was no sinful nature in Adam. He was created perfect in righteousness and holiness. So that is very different from us, right? And the second thing is that Adam was able to change. Meaning, you may have heard me talk about this before. He was either able to sin or able not to sin. He could choose the good or he could choose to disobey God. And that's what we see. And so Adam is wholly created different than us and similar to us in some ways. He is created in God's image, but he is also unlike us. He is perfect in the sense that he has no sin, but he is able to fall away or sin, if you will. And so why am I saying this? Adam was not at the highest state of life that he could be at. Why? Because We know that there's an ultimate state of being where there's no sin, there's no possibility of sinning. Adam was not there. So God created Adam in this state, we call it mutable, where he was perfect, there was no sinfulness in him, but he was able to sin or not to sin. And there was this higher life, there was this glory, this eternal life that was held out for Adam. And we see this as we look at the account in Genesis. So God... In the beginning, he condescends. He, in his kindness, he enters into an agreement with Adam. And some of these things were implied from the text, and some of them are stated explicitly. In Genesis 2, 17, we see this first sanction. It says that if you eat, you may eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in that day you eat, you shall surely die. So there's an agreement that... If you do this, if you disobey, death will come, right? So there's the curse part of the agreement. And the implication of this other tree, there's two trees in the garden, right? There's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and there's the tree of life. 
The tree of life symbolized that higher life that was held out for Adam. That if he obeyed, he would enter into that state of unchanging glory. And we can see this not only in the book of Genesis, but in the book of Revelation. It talks about eating of the tree of life and having life eternal. So this tree symbolized that. It wasn't a magic tree that had magic superpowers, right? It was symbolic of if Adam obeyed, he would enter this higher glory, this eternal life, where he would no longer have the possibility of falling into sin. He would be um, unchangeable in glory, if you will. Hopefully that's making sense. So what do we have here? We have an agreement. (laughs) If you obey... You will receive eternal life, glory. If you disobey, you will receive death. That sounds a lot like a covenant, right? An agreement with blessings or curses. So, what does this mean? This is the covenant of works. This is the covenant of works. God condescends. He divinely institutes this covenant with Adam. If you work and obey, you will receive life. If you don't, if you disobey, you'll receive death. And so we know that this, this, this state for Adam does not long abide, as we might say, right? What happens? Satan uses the subtlety of the serpent. He tempts Eve, who tempts Adam, And they causes them to disobey God, to go against his word. He said not to eat of the tree. They eat of the tree and they are cast into death, not just physical death, not just spiritual death, but eternal death. Right. All these things are part of that curse. God said, if you eat of this, you will receive death. And so they lose their communion with God. Right. They are aware of their nakedness. They're aware of their sin and they try to hide themselves. And we're all familiar with this part of the story. And when we, when we look at later parts of Scripture in Romans 5, we see that Adam was a representative. It says, by the one man's sin, the many were made sinners. So Adam was a representative, a federal head is the technical language. So he represented us. So not only did Adam fall in this, in disobeying God, but we all fell with him. And hopefully this makes more sense of, you know, somebody might come up to you and say, man, I just picture somebody from like Santa Barbara, California saying, man, your God's kind of harsh, man. They, he, they ate the fruit and, you know, wow, that's harsh. But what's happening? It's not just disobeying God. They're breaking God's covenant. They are disobeying him. And this is a breaking of a covenant. And God is keeping his covenant saying, if you disobey, you will receive death. All that to say... This applies to us. How? We are born into sin. As we read in places like Psalm 51, David admits that in my conception, I was conceived into sin, right? Meaning we're born sinners. We don't have to teach our kids how to sin. We don't have to teach ourselves. It's part of what we are born into because of Adam's fall. And so, because of our sin, it is impossible for us to fulfill this covenant of works. We cannot fulfill God's law perfectly. We cannot obey. And so therefore, we cannot fulfill this covenant of works. We cannot enter that higher life, that eternal life that God set out for Adam by our works. We are unable. 
And you might say, that sounds pretty helpless. And it's because it is, right? And God is just. God is just. He is not going to sweep our sin under the rug, under the cosmic rug, and say, it doesn't matter, you know, you guys sinned, but it's no big deal. God is just. He maintains his justice. And many of us are familiar with this passage in Romans 3. It's very quoted a lot. It says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We can see how this parallels the account with Adam, right? Adam fell short of the glory of God. He did not enter into glory as he was supposed to. He was supposed to work and enter into glory. And Paul is saying in Romans 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have fallen short of that glory, of unchangeable, eternal life, communion with God forever. By our sin, we have been separated from God. And so because God is just, our sin must be punished. And that leads us to this question of how can God save a sinful people? This is really the rest of Scripture, right? From Genesis 3 on, we have Adam and Eve falling. And the rest of Scripture is trying to answer this question. How can God save a sinful people? How is he going to do it? He has to be just. He cannot compromise his justice. But how is he going to save a people that are sinners, that deserve his judgment, his justice? This brings us to the second point today. The covenant of grace. So we've seen this covenant of works. Adam was supposed to do this and live. And he failed. And so the rest of scripture is about this covenant of grace. How is God going to save a sinful people? We see this in Genesis 3. You could look there with me if you want. In Genesis 3.15 we see this promise revealed. We see this promise revealed of God's plan to save his people. And granted, it's very shadowy. It's not perfectly clear. But as we see the rest of Scripture, God's plan of redemption unfolds. So this is taking place right after Adam and Eve have sinned. God finds them in the garden. And he starts pronouncing these covenant curses. And he starts with the serpent. Many of us are familiar with this. He curses the serpent. And then he says this in Genesis 3.15, speaking to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What is that talking about, right? What is this poetic language? People have gone back to this scripture, theologians for many years, and seen this great covenant of grace revealed. What is the covenant of grace? It is God's promise to save, forgive, and redeem his people by the work of someone else. By the work of someone else. And we see it revealed here in Genesis 3.15. What is going on here? We see this promise of the offspring of the woman this offspring of the woman that will suffer, his heel will be bruised. He will suffer, but he will crush the head of the serpent. He will crush the head of the serpent. So this offspring of a woman will suffer, but crush the works of the serpent. Hopefully that's ringing some bells in our head. 
And so we see this idea, this promise of someone that's going to come, suffer, and defeat the works of the devil and save his people. And this is really, like I said, what the rest of Scripture is unveiling. And what do we see through the rest of Scripture? We see Noah. God makes a covenant with Noah. What is the covenant with Noah? The rainbow. The sign of this covenant that he will preserve his creation. That even though sin will increase, that God will not flood the earth again. He will preserve his creation. Some call this the covenant of common grace. Then we come to Abraham. What's promised to Abraham? What's covenanted to Abraham? A great people that will come from him. They will receive a land, a nation. Many peoples will come from you. And there's this little promise in the Abrahamic covenant of someone that will come from Abraham's seed that will bless the nations. That's sort of interesting. Then we come to Moses, right? A law is given to this people of Israel. A great law is given to them. Moses ascends the hill on Mount Sinai. And they're also given blessings and curses similar to what we see in the garden. Then we come to David, right? He's promised an offspring that will sit on the throne forever. And so we can see how this theme of offspring is coming up, whether it's in Abraham, the law being fulfilled in Moses, this great king that's going to sit on David's throne in the Davidic covenant. And then we come to the prophets. What do the prophets do? They are what we call God's covenant prosecutors. What's a prosecutor? A prosecutor is someone who brings the law to bear on someone. They accuse you. If Daryl breaks the law, a prosecutor is going to come and say, you broke this, 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 this. That's what the prophets were in some sense. They brought the law of God to bear on the people of God. They say, you have broken here, here, and here, and therefore these curses are going to come upon you. And so that's really the story of the Old Testament, is these people trying to keep this law, the law of Moses, but they cannot. They keep falling. They keep sinning. They're thrust into exile. And all these curses come upon them. And then what are the first verses that we read in the New Testament? Matthew 1.1. This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus. The son of Abraham. The son of David. And then it gives a long genealogy that maybe my mother-in-law skipped over. Right? But what is the point of that? It is saying that this... One who has come, Jesus Christ, is the promised offspring. He's the one promised all the way back in Genesis 3.15. The one promised to Abraham that would bless the nations. The one promised to David that would sit on his throne and have a kingdom that would have no end. And we see this, if you look at your liturgy today, in our um, assurance of pardon, we see Galatians 4. I I call this the... um, The New Testament version of Genesis 3.15. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Think Genesis 3.15. Born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption. Christ comes. Matthew 1, the rest of the New Testament, is about Christ coming, fulfilling the law for us, suffering the punishment that we deserved. And he is this promised one, this promised offspring. Kendall, what does it have to do with covenant theology and the covenant of works and the covenant of grace? What did Christ come to do? What is the covenant of grace? 
The covenant of grace is the covenant of works fulfilled for us. It is the covenant of works fulfilled for us. What Adam was supposed to do, what we are supposed to do is fulfill God's law, obey him, and enter into glory. Christ came, fulfilled the covenant of works. He fulfilled the law for us and entered into God's glory, into God's Sabbath rest. And then by his spirit, as we've been reading in Acts, dispenses those benefits to his people by faith. So the covenant of works, or the covenant of grace rather, is the covenant of works fulfilled for us by Christ. And the benefits are given to us by faith. So we do not work to enter this covenant. We do not work to receive the benefits of the covenant of grace. We simply receive them as a gift. And as we read in Romans 4, to the one who works, his wages are not a gift. They are earned. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, it is counted to him as righteousness. This is the covenant of works by which Adam fell and the covenant of grace by which we stand in Christ. So the covenant of works with Adam and even republished in the Mosaic covenant is do this and live. Obey the law and you'll get these blessings. And, but there's no hope for sinful people in the covenant of works. There's no hope for us to work and receive the benefits. But in the covenant of grace, God has condescended. He has sent his son, the offspring of the woman, to fulfill the law and purchased eternal redemption, eternal life and glory. So that we can not work, but receive. That's what faith is. It is receiving and resting on Christ alone for salvation. So this is the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. Let's, as we do every week, try to apply this to our lives. Try to see how this helps us in our day, in our life, in our week. Three things. First, hopefully we can see how understanding covenant connects all of Scripture. It connects all of Scripture. The Scriptures are not 66 random books split into two halves, the Old Testament and the New Testament. They're not two different ways of God saving his people. They're not two plans of redemption. There's not two different people of God. There is one people of God saved by God's grace in his son, Jesus Christ. There's one plan of redemption. From the beginning in Genesis 3 all the way to the end. God has done this and seen the covenants in scripture help us to see this unity of God's redemption. Um, We won't take time to look at it, but if you just think about Abraham, what's it say in Genesis 15? That Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. What did Abraham believe? Christ wasn't there. Kindle, you're saying everybody's saved by Jesus Christ. Abraham did not know the name Jesus Christ. How was he saved? It says he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He was looking to that promised seed that would come from him that would bless the nations. It was shadowy. It was not as clear as me and you understand it today. But Jesus says this in John 8. He says to the Pharisees, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. That's amazing. Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. What does that mean? Abraham looked forward to this coming offspring, this coming mediator that would fulfill the law and win redemption. 
We, on the other side of the cross, we look back to Jesus Christ. Abraham looked forward to him. This is the unity of God's plan of redemption. There's one people of God, and as Acts says, there's only one name under heaven by which we must be saved, and it is the Lord Jesus Christ. So, you know, as you're going through your Bible plan, (laughs) you might come to Leviticus or these weird stories in Genesis. Try to see how it fits into this overall scheme of God's covenant of work and God's covenant of grace. And we see God's unified plan to save a people for himself. The second thing is this protects justification by faith alone. This protects justification by faith alone. This was at the heart of the Reformation. The Catholic Church had come in, added all these things that must be done, these works, if we will. You need to do this. You need to give. You need to do your penance. You need to confess. All these things. And then you'll be made right with God. And the reformers came in. Martin Luther came in and exposed the works-based mentality that was present. And he said, if you look at the scriptures, justification, being made right with God, is by faith alone. It's received. It's not earned by us. And so... How does this idea of covenant of works and covenant of grace protect that idea? And it might seem counterintuitive, right? Because covenant of works, that sounds like works-based righteousness. But what we're saying is that God offered this to Adam and he failed. But Christ has fulfilled it for us. We're not saying the covenant of works is for us to fulfill. We can't. The covenant of works was fulfilled by no one other than the person of Jesus Christ. And he freely dispenses those benefits for us. So this protects us from adding works. We can't do any work to earn God's favor, to earn his good standing. Christ is the one who has done it alone. And that's why we look to him. We receive his work. So this protects justification by faith alone. And the reason I say that is because... I think this idea is creeping into many pulpits in a lot of ways that might be more subtle than we think. You know, many of us are familiar with the Mormon gospel, which is you're saved by grace after all that you do. Or maybe some of us are familiar with these other um, social gospels, right? You need to do enough good in society and then you can be made right with God. So those are maybe clear to us, but I think there's a more subtle thing that's creeping in where... Many people say with their mouth, we believe in justification by faith alone. They might even talk at the pulpit about how Christ has saved us from our sins, right? These are great truths. But the rest of the sermon is about what you need to do. It's about you need to go out and you need to do this. You need to evangelize more. You need to pray more. You need to read your Bible more. All these things. And so while the beginning of a sermon might be, Jesus died on the cross for your sins, Practically, the rest of what's said is, it's about you. It's what you need to do. And there's a hint of truth in that, right? The Christian life is not just one where we can live freely in our sin and do whatever we want. But we have to be so careful that we don't give the impression that, yes, we're forgiven, but it's really up to us to do enough good things to be made right with God. So this doctrine of the covenant of works protects that because Christ is the one that has fulfilled it. There's nothing left for us to do to earn our salvation. Yes, there is work to be done out of gratitude for what God's done, but it is no way the grounds of our 
justification. Hopefully that's making sense. So faith is not a work. It is a gift. It is received. So covenant connects the scriptures. This idea of covenant protects justification. And then finally, it is a great anchor for our souls. It's a great anchor for our souls. We read in places like Hebrews 6. I'm going to read it, actually. Um, We're actually going to sing about this in a little bit in the song Solid Rock. Uh, The writer of Hebrews says this. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath or covenant so that by two unchangeable things in which is it impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What's it say in the song we're about to sing? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. The second verse. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ the solid rock I stand, although the ground is sinking sand. The third verse. His oath, his covenant, his blood. Support me in the whelming flood when all around my soul gives way. He then is all my hope and stay. These songs, these older songs, are very connected to the Scripture. They are just saying what Hebrews 6 is saying, that we have a hope. What's our hope? First of all, that God will not lie. If He said He will save us by Christ, He will do it. And then He guaranteed it with a covenant. He made a covenant, and this is the new covenant, by which Christ's blood was shed, His body broken, that we might have righteousness, that we might be cleansed by the blood of Jesus the law fulfilled for us, righteousness given to us, and our sin forgiven. And so this covenant of grace is not built on our work. It is built on the work of Christ. And we can say this, that God will keep his covenant. He has promised to save his people through the work of Christ alone. He will not change his mind. We are standing, or sorry, when we stand on Christ, we have a solid rock. We have a anchor for our souls that has entered heaven. That's such a weird, amazing picture <laughs> that our hope has entered heaven. It's, it's not affected by the civil unrest of our world. It's not affected by disease or tribulation. Sometimes even our doubts. Our hope has entered heaven and we have an anchor for our souls. So today, as we struggle with our sin, as we struggle with the uncertainty of the world around us, We have a hope in God's covenant of grace by which Christ has done what we could not. May we have faith in him this morning. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for not leaving us to our own devices. We, in Adam, we sinned. We would have done the same thing. We would have disobeyed and gone against your law. 
And yet, in your grace, in your mercy, you have promised in your word that you would send your son. You did it. In the fullness of time, at the perfect time, you sent forth your son, your only son, under the law that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. Lord, if we're honest, our, our faith is not always strong. We doubt our salvation. We doubt our abilities to trust you, to obey you. We fail frequently. We sin. We go against your law. And we doubt that you could save a people like us. This morning, would we not look to ourselves first, but may we look to Christ, who has gone and done the work that Adam failed to do, that we could not do, and has entered Sabbath rest that we might one day enter that fully. We receive that in part today, but ultimately in the new heavens and the new earth. May our hope be on Christ this morning, not on our works, not on our ability to muster up enough strength, but in Christ alone this morning. We need your spirit. We cannot do these things on our own. Help us, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you want to stand with me, we will... Sing the great hymn, Solid Rock, um, hymnal number 216.
face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. The grace and peace of our Lord as you go from here. Amen.